This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, on this, uh, again, another gray, fi- gray foggy day. <laughs> you can okay, see all right, better all right. than I can. So. Okay, fair enough. Um, Claudette. Yes. I went for that eye appointment. Remember I was telling you about how I had to have an eye appointment? Yeah, so tell me. Well, weirdly, my eyes are better. How is that possible? Well, it's because one is a little bit better better than the <laughs> other one. I have an astigmatism, so it's making everything a little bit... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but the reason why I mention it is because I went down, uh, you know, you go for dentist appointments and doctor's appointments and, uh, you know, ophthalmologists and all the rest of it. Well, I went down for this eye appointment today and what a hoot we had. Really? Oh, yes. The people there were fabulous. The girls were like, I think you're Linda Swade for radio. And anyway, it it was a what a great time we had. I came in like. La 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 la. Had a clinical appointment. A, yeah. You had a great oh, time. It was fat. I had. It was just like a parody. You know, everyone's going to want to know now where. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, want, I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that unfairly, <laughs> if know. you know what I'm saying. But yeah. uh, man, oh man, I got treated like uh, somebody who needed a pair of glasses and got them. Like how you should be treated. (laughs) Anyway, it was fabulous. I had to mention it uh, because then they were asking me about everybody else. Oh, my goodness. I'll leave that alone. Yeah, I can. No, uh, uh, you know, it was all smiles and uh, laughter and oh my. Uh, when I, uh, when I, as I was leaving, uh, one of the girls said to me, she said, sure, this wasn't fun at all. She said. <laughs> I love people with a dry sense of humor. Yeah, anyway, we had a fabulous time. Oh my goodness. And did you get classes? No, because I you don't need them. I <laughs> did. No, I did. I got new, uh, new spectacles and uh, they're coming soon. So oh. you'll get to see them on my little peepers not too long from now. Looking forward to it. Uh, only when I'm reading though, apparently. So there you go. Uh, Well, on a completely separate topic, and I don't want to uh, make light of this in any way, but I like to start the show uh, on a bit of a lighter note. So, uh, but uh, the world is watching, of course, with absolute shock, dismay, and fear as the violence escalates in Israel and in the Gaza Strip. Well, the situation currently unfolding is the culmination of a long history of conflict in the region. Justin Fantuzo is an assistant history professor at uh, Memorial University who specializes in the Middle East and he joins me down now to break down some of the history of that region. Justin, first of all, tell us what your area of, uh, I guess, expertise is. Yeah, so I focus mostly on the Middle East in the uh, early 20th century, particularly around the First World War. Um, And uh, in that particular area, my work usually tends to focus on uh, the part that the British Empire played uh, in prosecuting its war in the Middle East during the First World War, um, but also kind of how the British Empire tried to incorporate uh, parts of the Middle East uh, uh, after the war and, and how they tried to govern them as well. So certainly that's not the starting point uh, that uh, led to you know the latest developments over the past weekend, uh, but it was a, a bit of a trigger at that time, wasn't it, uh, post-World um, War II? So, you know, you can really kind of divide this, I think, into 
you know, like any problem, right? There are long-term, medium-term, and, and, and short-term uh, events that lead up to something. Um, I mean, in the long term, you know, you have events going back to the late 19th century, in particular to the, the 1880s, at the real kind of like base foundation of, of the problem that we're seeing today, for those who are unfamiliar with the region or, or the conflict in particular. Um, issues about, uh, you know, whose uh, uh, who's right it was to the land in Palestine, which in the early 20th century, before the First World War, uh, was governed by the Ottoman Empire, so the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Um, and, you know, there's kind of two competing movements that both come about in the late 19th century. You know, one is called Zionism, which you can kind of loosely describe as a, a Jewish nationalism, a belief in a Jewish homeland, a Jewish state. And there's an increasing sense, a burgeoning sense of Arab nationalism um, in the Eastern Mediterranean as well. Um, and an Arab nationalism that often sees Palestine, or what we would today call Israel and the Palestinian territories, uh, as part of some kind of future Arab state. Um, so, you know, that's part of the real base foundation, the really, really long history. And, you know, you have a number of different events from the 1880s up until the end of the Second World War uh, that changed that situation. Um, the fall of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War, the uh, 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 the government of the British, what we call mandate, uh, as part of the League of Nations, a kind of precursor to the United Nations. So Britain will take control of many of the territories in the Middle East, as well as France, in the aftermath of the First World War. And uh, what we then start to see as well is increased Jewish immigration to Palestine uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s. So the demographics also start to change. Uh, and then we have the creation of Israel in 1948 after the, the Second World War, um, and in particular after the Holocaust. Those would be really, really long-term uh, uh, events that kind of contribute to the crisis. Then you've got the medium-term ones, like the wars fought between Israel and its neighbors throughout the 20th century, particularly between 1948 and about 1982. Uh, there's about four conflicts that Israel fights. The most important one uh, for the situation today is the Six-Day War in 1967, uh, a war in which Israel uh, ends the conflict in control of the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and an area along the Syrian border called the Golan Heights. So Sinai eventually goes back to Egypt as part of a peace treaty with the Egyptians in uh, 1979. Uh, the Golan Heights will effectively be kind of de facto annexed into Israel, um, but that still left the two Palestinian territories that we still have today with the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Um, and then you have more immediate, uh, more short-term kind of events leading up to today. And by that, I mean kind of the last, you know, let's say three to five years. The most important ones... Uh, this year being, at least according to Hamas, the uh, uh, kind of Israeli settler provocations in the West Bank, renewed violence between Israeli settlers. So those are Israelis who have set up towns and villages illegally in the West Bank, although they have the support of the Israeli government. They're illegal under international law, or at least as the United Nations recognizes them, uh, and the kind of geopolitical situation, particularly this attempt to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This is something that Hamas, who launched this attack um, nearly a week ago now, um, does not want to see happen. What role does politics and, and uh, you know the 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 party in charge, um, both in Israel and and the governing um, uh, Hamas in 
Gaza, for instance, what roles do they play? And does it change? Well, it certainly changes historically, right? So, um, you know, the Gaza Strip, for example, has not always been ruled by Hamas. Uh, Hamas has only been in power in the Gaza Strip since 2007. Um, So Israel, as I had mentioned, occupied the Gaza Strip from 1967 until 2005. Israel then withdrew from the Gaza Strip, uh, demolished all of the settlements that had been built there. About uh, 20 or so settlements had been built in those years. Uh, They demolished all of them, evacuated all Israeli settlers and left the Gaza Strip uh, alone. Um, Hamas was then elected and put into power two years uh, later. Now, on the Israeli side... You know, governments have come and gone just like any other democratic country in the world over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, And the position of those governments has changed often as well. You know, whether or not they support um, a two-state solution, and by that we simply mean two states for two peoples. So Israel exists in some form or shape, and a Palestinian state exists alongside it in some form or state. Um, So some governments have tended to support that model. Um, Some governments, not many of them, but some governments have been more sympathetic to what we would call a one-state solution. So that is effectively a state of Israel that includes both of those Palestinian territories, uh, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and a state in which Israelis and Israeli Arabs or Palestinians, whether Christian or Muslim, uh, have equal rights. Now, today... The two governments that are in charge um, are, are, are really, uh, you know, could not be more opposite. Uh, and you really couldn't have a more kind of uh, perfect political storm for the situation that's unfolding today. In the Gaza Strip, as we said, you have Hamas. Now, Hamas is an Islamist organization. Um, their vision for a future Palestinian state is one in which no Israel exists. So they would not support a two-state solution, although... Sometimes what they say publicly is not what they say behind the scenes. Um, Here and there, you might read that uh, what they'll say privately to other Palestinian uh, resistance groups or or what they might say to uh, mediators in the process is that, you know, they might be willing to accept a two-state solution. But publicly, at least, they don't. They reject that idea. Now, Hamas sees the only path towards Palestinian statehood uh, as a military one. They reject any diplomatic negotiations. They don't see any path towards peace that doesn't include a military resistance. In Israel, you have a government now led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been uh, prime minister before. Um, Netanyahu belongs to a party known as Likud, which is kind of a center-right-ish party. But in order for him to come to power this year, um, he had to form a coalition uh, of really kind of quite right-wing parties, uh, including uh, two parties in particular um, in Israel that are, are quite ultra-nationalist, quite, quite right-wing. Um, so, you know, you have an Israeli government right now that is very unsympathetic <laughs> to any of the demands of Hamas and, and one that simply, uh, I think, will not, will not back down over the coming uh, weeks and months. It came at a time when uh, Saudi Arabia was trying to broker some kind of a of a peace plan, a peace accord in in the region. Uh, do you think the timing, uh, you know, was intentional here? So that's one of the main questions that's on the minds of uh, you know observers, people who study the region, um, uh, people who are interested in the region. Is what what 
kind of motivated, obviously, Hamas's attack. And how much of this had to do with, as you say, this um, uh, kind of Saudi process to normalize relations with the Israelis. Now, it's an important process because it would be another Arab country uh, and another Gulf state to normalize relations with Israel since 2020. So under the Trump presidency in 2020, we had the Abraham Accords, which led to the normalization of relations between Israel, Bahrain, um, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Morocco and North Africa, as well as the Sudan. Um, And that was a really critical kind of game-changing moment in which Israel was finally able to get recognition and diplomatic uh, normalization with some of its neighbors nearer and more abroad to it. Now, it had already had a peace treaty and normalization with Jordan and Egypt since the, the late 70s and early 80s, but, you know, it had been nearly 40 years and they weren't able to really expand on, um, on that process. Reportedly, the Israelis and the Saudis who have worked together behind the scenes for a number of years, but have always still kind of, you know, kept each other at a distance publicly. Reportedly, Israel and Saudi Arabia were close to reaching an agreement to normalize relations uh, around this time. Um, one of the main driving factors for that is the mutual enemy that they share, and that is Iran. Uh, both see Iran as a regional threat. Both see Iran as uh, an obstacle in the way of regional stability, um, and both are, are really kind of by and large willing to put aside their differences. Um, even as it might relate to Palestine, Saudi Arabia has always been a key partner, uh, an important piece of any peace process puzzle as it relates to the Palestinians and the Israelis. But you know, increasingly, uh, a lot of the Arab states have to be asking the question, you know, what is their support of the Palestinian cause getting them? Uh, it's been 56 years since the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories began, uh, and some of them, uh, frankly, are, are moving on. Um, and, and the Saudis appear to have maybe been another state that was looking to normalize relations uh, and kind of change the geopolitical situation in the region. So you mentioned Iran, and uh, there have been a lot of questions now regarding whether or not Iran actually played a role here. Um, What do we know? So what we know is that Iran almost certainly, um, although this is still being disputed, we probably won't know for months, maybe years, exactly what part they played, but it looks like there's fairly good evidence that Iran at least met with Hamas, um, as well as uh, an organization in southern Lebanon known as Hezbollah, which is a a Shiite uh, organization, a Shiite militia in southern Lebanon that is also backed by Iran. Um, There's very good evidence that the three met in Beirut, um, you know, in the days, maybe weeks leading up to the attack to uh, coordinate uh, plans and to make sure everything was ready to go. Um, Even as recently as I I think this morning, you know, the situation is constantly evolving. There's new information coming out all of the time. Uh, Hamas had indicated this morning, a Hamas spokesperson, uh, that the plan, uh, the attack that took place last week had been in the planning for as much as a year or or longer. So they've been planning this for a long time. And and any observers, um, any analyst of the region, you can see a lot of Iranian fingerprints on this, at least in terms of money uh, that helped to make this operation possible, um, probably ammunitions and ordinances, um, as well as any kind of uh, tactical support that Hamas might have needed. Like, make no mistake about this. This was Hamas's attack. 
but there's little question that Iran probably had some role behind the scenes to play. Um, what we'll find out in the weeks and months to come is just how integral, how central of a role uh, they actually played. Justin Fantuzo, really appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that is, uh, Justin Fantuzo, sorry, is a uh, an assistant professor of history at Memorial University, who, of course, uh, specializes in the Middle East. Well, coming up, remembering a longtime member of the provincial PC party. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Well, a stalwart of the Progressive Conservative Party here in Newfoundland and Labrador and a man known as an advocate for women in politics has passed away. PC leader David Brazel says Bill Galton passed away earlier this week. He speaks now with VOCM's Richard Duggan. Well, for more than six decades, you know, he was one of the architects of the uh, PC party in Newfoundland and Labrador, and not just here in the uh, Northeast Avalon. I mean, he would travel to different districts, uh, helping organize, uh, you know, the uh, political campaigns. He would help organize district associations. Uh, He would look at the strategies that we would use. Uh, He was a consultant for the party around, uh, you know, the policies that we would develop and the strategies we would use in a uh, election, how we could be relatable to the people of the province and reflect their needs. He always had and is well known for two key components. He was a motivator. You wouldn't find uh, a better motivator in this province. But he would, um, it was always one more vote. And that was the thing. He always talked about never give up. Uh, Everything is important. Everybody's vote is important and you must strive to get that. So it was always one more vote uh, was a key and every vote counts. Because he was a real believer that everybody has a stake in this province. Everybody should have input into how the province is ran. Best way you can do that is by voting. Best way we could do it as a party is by giving people the opportunity to exercise a democratic right and vote. Uh, Bill did that for a multitude of premiers, a multitude of leaders, and continued uh, during my tenure as leader to do the same thing and motivate people even in his later years and as he got a little bit uh, uh, sicker in the last number of years. But he was here for the people of this province and And uh, it's a great loss for the PC Party Newfoundland and Labrador, but all of Newfoundland and Labrador. What impact did he have on you and your career? Well, you know, I remember, you know, almost 50 years ago, you know, as a young man, uh, just being involved in the campaign, putting up posters and that, and Bill coming to Belle Island at the time. And keep in mind, they were, you know, they were the days there was a a good forged relationship between the uh, federal Progressive Conservative Party and the provincial one. And he would come over and work on uh, Jim McGraw's, MP Jim McGraw's campaign. And I was a young man then who was involved uh, with the campaigns then. You know, he was a motivator. He knew how to get young people involved. He was a real believer in that, you know, every gender, every person should have an opportunity to be involved in the uh, campaigns. He was big in pushing young people in campaigns, uh, big in pushing women into the campaigns process, not only as volunteers, but as candidates as part of that process. So, you know, I, I took from him motivation i took from him mentoring and i took from him a vision of what, where a party should be uh, if it's to properly represent the people of this province and bill had that uh, from his early days as a young man working in the the uh, campaigns here but he ran a lot of them federally provincially even some municipal ones so that speaks volumes of his capacity his skill set uh, his relatability and his genuine concern about uh, giving people an opportunity to exercise their democratic rights in this province what sort of an impact do you think he's left on the province's political scene? 
Well, again, I mean, it's not only our party, but other parties have adopted, you know, the whole philosophy of engaging the grassroots and making sure that volunteers are part and parcel of the elective process here. But he made it important that everybody has a role in an election. And it didn't make any difference if you were a driver picking up people, if you were on the phones, if you were putting up a sign, uh, if you were a poll captain, if you were a candidate. You all had an equal uh, job to do and equal importance to make sure that your candidate won or that your policy got put out to the general public so they could make an informed decision. He felt that everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador, regardless what political strike you were, should have the information necessary to make the right decision around who they felt should be their representative. And he, he did his part. It wasn't only for our party. You know, he was willing to share his information with other people, but he was a loyalist to the PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador and continued to be that uh, right up until his uh, passing this past week. And that is PC leader David Brazel on the late Bill Galton. Of course, uh, David, I guess, is enjoying the last few days as leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. A new leader will be chosen this weekend, and VOCM News is going to be following that for you. Another well-known Newfoundlander and Labradorian has passed away. The patriarch of the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador business dynasty, um, the Pike Group of Companies, uh, Roger Pike, passed away on Wednesday at the age of 82. And uh, the Pike group of companies included everything from Air Labrador to uh, Notre Dame Seafoods to Harvey and Company, would you believe? Uh, Some extraordinary businesses there that uh, touch a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians in a variety of ways. Uh, Roger Pike also uh, was the pilot who flew a vintage DC-3 into Harbor Grace and donated the spirit of Harbor Grace to the town to mark the town's long aviation history, dating uh, way back to the 19, uh, late 1920s, early 1930s. So uh, very sad news indeed. Uh, Roger Pike uh, passed away at the age of 82. Well, coming up, emergency first responders roll up their sleeves to give the gift of life. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Thank you, Claudette and Noah. Well, emergency crews descended on the Canadian Blood Services today, not because of a fire or anything like that, but to help out in case of an emergency. It was all in support of the Sirens for Life Blood Drive. Members of the RCMP, the RNC, St. John's Regional Fire Department all turned out for a friendly competition to see which group could get the most members to donate blood and get the message out, of course, about the importance of blood donation. Well, VOCM's Richard Duggan was there this morning and spoke with St. John's Regional Fire Department Chief Sherry Colford, RNC Deputy Chief Stephanie Legassi, and Gord Skiffington of the Canadian Blood Services. Uh, we're here today for the Sirens for Life. Basically, it's emergency responders that are coming out, donating blood, and getting the message out there of how important it is for the community to get involved in donating blood as well. Now, I noticed uh, when I went inside that there's a little bit of a friendly competition going on here between uh, the fire department and and the police forces. Oh, absolutely. There's a competition. We're counting people as they go in to see, uh, you know, are we winning or are we not? Um, Yeah, it's a bit of a friendly competition. It just encourages people to get out and, you know, our emergency responders see each other on scenes all the time. So it's nice that they get together in a casual environment. 
How many of your members are you hoping will come out today? We have 15 signed up. Uh, they have extra slots if anyone shows up on their own time. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. And why is it so important for anyone listening to this to get out and donate blood? You know, people look at our firefighters and say that they're everyday heroes. And in actual fact, anybody can be an everyday hero and save a life. And this is the way that they can do it. So we're hoping that us being out here will encourage people to look at it and say, that's something that I can do. And they'll make the effort to also come out. Our emergency responders see the need for this every day. And we're hoping that, you know, others will want to be that everyday hero as well. How proud are you to see this sort of an effort today? Oh, I, I love this event. You know, we haven't done this since 2019 because of the pandemic, and we were excited to see that it was up and running again this year. So we, we look forward to this every year. Stephanie Legassi, Deputy Chief with the Rolling Flank Stabulary. We're trying to encourage our members to come out and donate blood. There's a little bit of a healthy competition going on between the RNC, the RCMP, and the St. John's Regional Fire Department to see who can get the most numbers out today to donate. How many of your members are you hoping will come out today? I think we have 20-plus that are signed up to come out today. They're all uh, scheduled for, I guess, after 11 there today, so we hope to see them show up very soon. And why is it so important for members of the RNC to come out and uh, support this initiative? I think we all know that, uh, you know, at any day, at any time, any one of our family members, friends, or co-workers um, could require blood. And we know, you know, we deal with a lot of tragedies, and we know that people rely on that. Um, so it's very important for us to get out and give back when we can. Gord Skiffington. I'm the Community Development Manager for Canadian Blood Services in Newfoundland and Labrador. So today we're having our annual Sirens for Life uh, challenge. Uh, we need all blood types every single day of the year and our first responders um, many times they're the, the first ones on the scene of accidents. They see firsthand uh, the need for uh, blood and blood products. Um, when people are on our highways um, you know the chance of accidents happening increases especially around long weekends during the uh, the summer etc and uh, unfortunately accidents do occur if somebody is injured in a major car crash he or she may require up to 50 donors to help uh, save the uh, the person's life if uh, there's uh, serious internal uh, trauma so we have 50 over 50 emergency responders uh, that signed up today uh, to uh, give blood to give that uh, gift of life to give back um, and hopefully be able to inspire other community uh, organizations uh, to uh, step up and uh, do the same Uh, during uh, COVID um, you know, we did uh, pretty good. Prior to COVID, uh, the percentage of um, popula- the population, eligible population that uh, donated uh, was about 4%. And uh, since COVID, uh, that number has dropped to less than 2% of the actual eligible population currently donates. So uh, we're hoping, uh, you know, that uh, citizens will uh, see, um, you know, they see what the emergency responders do every day, and hopefully they'll take it a step forward, you know, see the emergency responders as role models and uh, book their life-saving appointments over the the coming uh, weeks. With the need being so great, as you just mentioned, what does it mean for you to see such an effort to help promote 
the message of Canadian Blood Services? It's amazing. You know, we put out the email call to the emergency responders, and uh, you know, they were all on board. Um, and we're doing a friendly uh, challenge today to see uh, which organization, our CMP, RNC, uh, or the St. John's Regional Fire Department, to see who can actually uh, recruit, uh, get the most number of uh, donors into our uh, donor center uh, today. Appointments are limited, um, so uh, if um, all the appointments are taken, uh, you know, we ask people to uh, go online and book their own personal life-saving appointment, and I'm sure there will be uh, other emergency responders that's not here today that will be uh, booking appointments over the uh, the coming uh, weeks and months. Now we're into the fall now, which is a, a busy time for a lot of folks. How great is the need this time of year and I guess what are you looking to do over the next couple of months to help meet that demand? So uh, there is that constant need for uh, blood uh, and blood products. We need all blood types every single day of the year and um, we normally operate on a national inventory system and uh, throughout the summer and into the the first part of uh, fall uh, we normally operate five three to five day supply we actually had uh, days where we had two to three day supply of blood in the entire country so uh, in order to be able to uh, remain supplying hospital patients um, you know with those uh, life-saving products we need people to come in on a weekly basis uh, to uh, donate blood here in St. John's at Wicklow Street we have over 200 appointments that we need to fill every single week in order to ensure that we're able to uh, supply hospital patients with the uh, the blood and blood products that they require. So that's Gord Skiffington of Canadian Blood Services, along with the uh, chief of the St. John's Regional Fire Department, Sherry Colford, and RNC Deputy Chief Stephanie Legassi, who all rolled up their sleeves today to uh, give the gift of life as part of Sirens for Life blood drive on Wicklow Street today. Well, the RNC has just issued this release, and we're going to have more about this uh, coming up after the break. But the uh, Royal Newfoundland Constabulary uh, says it has heard directly from community leaders in St. John's that the war in the Middle East is generating concern right here on the ground in Newfoundland and Labrador. The RNC is aware of global online threats about events that may occur tomorrow and as a result is increasing patrols at cultural centers, synagogues, mosques and other places of worship. Uh, The RNC will continue to work with community partners and monitor the situation to ensure that everyone is safe. Uh, People can expect to see an increased police presence in and around those areas, uh, various cultural centers, synagogues and mosques in and around uh, the capital city area and other areas as well. And it's similar to what's happening now in Toronto, the Toronto Regional Police also um, increasing their security measures in Toronto because of these concerns that have been raised uh, as a result of um, the ongoing escalation of violence uh, between Israel and and uh, Gaza. So uh, we'll be watching that very closely and we'll hear from the Toronto police chief uh, coming up after this break. But uh, you will see an increased police presence in and around uh, Newfoundland and Labrador as well. Um, this is News Talk on VOCN. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. 
And we're back. We started the show today with a breakdown of the history behind the conflict in the Middle East and the escalation of violence between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Well, today, Toronto police announced that they were increasing security around various places of worship in that city. Here's some of what Toronto Police Chief Myron Dimkew told reporters at a news conference in Toronto earlier today. I want to be clear, there's no specific threat to the City of Toronto. However, our communities have spoken clearly that they don't feel safe, and we are being responsive to that concern. You know, you've had some incidents of um, hate motivated graffiti and the like. Can you give us more details of any other incidents uh, that might have happened over the recent days? Well, I'm a, I, of course, yesterday there was wide reporting about an incident at a bus shelter. Um, we are, uh, one of the reasons we're putting the command posts in the community is to ensure that we have direct connectivity as quickly as we can to any kind of incidences that are of concern. Uh, so we're you know, creating open channels for engagement to make sure we get that quickly, and that's for a, a couple reasons. A, we want to be able to respond quickly and gather evidence, and secondly, we want to be able to secure the scene and clean up whatever is there uh, to ensure the community does feel safe. Um, is there any word of any protests tomorrow? Are you guys expecting so the, uh, as it relates to protests, of course, uh, we're all aware that there's uh, uh, many channels of communication around the world, around protests. Uh, we are continuing to monitor that very, very actively and will respond to any specifics as it relates to Toronto. At this point, uh, I can advise you that we're actively monitoring to determine if there is anything specific for Toronto. Can you talk specifically about how the federal and Absolutely. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that we operated. We operate in an integrated policing environment. Uh, we benefit from an incredible partnership, uh, both within uh, municipal police services, but provincially and federally. Uh, so, for example, we have um, uh, joint forces units in various disciplines, uh, and have had that for you know many years. That's been the policing model here. As it relates to events of this nature, we have a number of ways our police agencies connect to share information intelligence in a timely way, but we're also operationally connected through things like the RCMP-led Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, where we are embedded in those units. We have leadership roles in those units as a municipal service, recognizing that uh, the population of Toronto is impacted by many of these kinds of events. Uh, and that's one example. There are many others where we have operational centers and where we have our officers sit together with other agencies and able to seamlessly exchange information and understand the operating picture of our different jurisdictions. That is Toronto Police Chief Myron Dimkew about Toronto Police increasing security at various uh, places of worship in and around the Toronto area. Not associated with any specific threats, but just to make sure that the communities are feeling a little more secure. Well, the Newfoundland Rogues have announced the details of their upcoming season. The Rogues will be competing in the Basketball Super League, which was formed earlier this year with an opening night of January 19th. VOCM's Richard Duggan attended the virtual news conference earlier today. Here's what owner Tony Kenny, coach Jerry Williams, and league president David Magley had to say. Uh, today we're releasing our schedule uh, for the upcoming season. Our season will kick off on January 18th and will run until April 28th and playoffs will start the first week of May. Our, our season will be 37 games. 25 of those games will be at the Mary Brown Centre and uh, 12 will be on the road. All our games this year will be in Canada. 
We will play 24 of those games with BSL teams and 13 of those games with uh, TBL uh, teams. So we're going to get a good cross-section of uh, basketball from uh, all sides of North America. We feel we have uh, probably the best outside of the NBA and G League for talent-wise that uh, fans will see at the Mary Brown Centre this year. Um, In addition to the regular season, uh, and Mr. Magley will speak on this, we're also going to have a All-Star weekend, uh, which will be early March, and that will take place in Sudbury. So this year starts the, and and again, Mr. Magley will speak more about it, starts the uh, BSL uh, League, uh, which is a division of the TBL, and we're going to have six Canadian teams in, uh, in this league. Uh, KW Titans or Kitchener Waterloo Titans, London Lightning, Montreal Tundra, Sudbury Five, Windsor Express, and of course the Newfoundland Rogues. Out of those uh, six teams, Newfoundland Rogues and the Montreal Tundra played last year in the TBL, and the other four teams played in the NBL of Canada. And so we will have a good uh, cross section of um, talent and games. Uh, that they'll see at the Mary Brown Centre this season. So I'm going to ask uh, the President, Mr. Uh, David Magley, now to say a few words on the uh, uh, BSL. It's, it's exciting. I just got done doing a, a, a media event in, in, in Sudbury. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're thrilled <clears throat> for you because you get the level of play that, that, that the NBL had with those four teams that are very, very good. You get a Montreal team that's going to be great. Plus, you still get to play some of the very best TBL teams we're going to have. We'll be coming to see you. Uh, the All-Star Game will be March 9th. Um, and then other things that will be exciting, you know, we have a new ball sponsor that will be announced soon. Uh, uh, we'll have a, a, a new – we're planning a Thursday and Saturday game of the week on TV. So games will be available on bsltv.tv like they were in, in your previous life of TBL, but we'll also have two nationally televised games uh, that will come out on a Thursday night and a Saturday night a week. So, you know, there's a, there's a decent likelihood you'll be playing on in, in worldwide national television as well. Um, we have uh, uh, some major new sponsors that will be added to this. And, you know, the, the long-term vision of BSL is to then grow to where we'll have 12 next year, uh, probably four, four uh, U.S. teams and, and, and a couple of more Canadian teams. Um, we're going to, because we own both leagues, um, the, 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 the long-term strategy is to allow teams to be able to play at their level. So that means we'll have relegation for teams that the, the TBL makes more sense for and promotion for TBL teams that have shown really well that can move up into BSL, which is like premier uh, premier soccer in Europe. You know, so now you'll be able to get people going up and down, which is really exciting for the for the leagues and, and all of that. And I just think that, you know, we're playing more of a winter schedule, which is basketball season, especially in Canada. I mean, let's face it, Canada's the the, the, the second most players in the NBA outside of the U.S. are Canadian. There's more Division One players that come out of Toronto than come out of New York City. It is a growing, emerging basketball market. 
So the more that we can play during the basketball season, the the better it is for your fans. Uh, we learned the hard way that that uh, Newfoundland we- uh, winners can be hard, and but that that means that 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 that, that people that have been in those for a long time, <laughs> excuse me, when it comes to the spring, you want to get outside. Yeah, so it's harder for our Canadian markets to go out in June and July or late May and June for, for fan bases. You had a great crowd at your playoff game, though. Um, but overall, we think playing a, a winter schedule is better for this league. Uh, and we're excited by it, and we're, we're thrilled to have it back. We were really happy with the end of the season for the Rogues. I know it was kind of you – know, they have a longer season than, than, than the other TBL teams, and they wore down a little bit. But they competed hard in the playoffs. And when they came home, they had their best crowd of the year. Uh, Coach Jerry's done a wonderful job building a product that you can be proud of. And I will tell you, we gave uh, Tony and TBL last year the Herb Ellis uh, Community uh, the Team of the Year, Community Service of the Year Award, because of all of the wonderful things you did from going to indigenous tribal grounds that were you know, eight hours away to being active in the community, to special needs, to community schools, to everything that they did. And that's what makes these rogues an asset. And that's not going to change in either league that we own. We want our teams to be community assets because that's more important than anything else we do. Uh, So now I'm going to ask Coach Williams uh, to say a few words. Um, But I'm very excited for the season to get started, man. You know, like um, Dave said and you said, we put in a lot of work over the summer to get these things going and to try to get the best players that we possibly can. I keep um, reiterating the fact that outside of the G League and the NBA, I think we do have some of the best talent in the world. And a lot of you guys are going to be able to see that this year. Um, I have some exciting players coming in to play. I do have some returning guys that I know a lot of fans are going to be very excited about um, that we will start releasing in the next week or so. So, you know, I'm just looking forward. I'm ready to get back on the island and get started um, and and get some good basketball going in front of these fans, man. Like, they deserve it. I know they're tired of just sitting there with no sports or anything going on. So we want to, you know, put the sports in in front of them and fill up Mary Brown Center and – Win, be the first team to win the championship of the um, BSL. I'm saying it right now. Um, right now, before we get started, I want to be the first coach of the BSL champion. So um, it's a goal of mine. It's a goal that I'm going to implement on these guys time they walk in the first day of practice. And we're going to try our best to beat every team that we possibly can. And, you know, regardless of the situation, we're going to come out and play really, really tough basketball for our fans. There you go. A little update on the upcoming Rogues season of basketball. That's it for us this evening. We'll be back tomorrow. So do join us then. Noah Shepard up next with the day in review. Thanks for listening, everyone.